Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. For coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles this morning and speaking about the Nova Scotia Health Coalition. And before we start, um, would I, I'll get you just to let our listeners know a background about the Nova Scotia Health Co- Coalition and what the goals of the and objectives for Nova Scotians. Yeah, absolutely. So the Nova Scotia Health Coalition um, is a, I like to say, uh, political but nonpartisan organization. Yes. So we're not aligned with any political party. We don't receive any government funding, um, but we are political. We think that the solution to long-term care is entirely about politics. It's a question of how do we allocate resources, who has power in our society, um, and what they do with it. Um, and how we, um, as people who um, are users of the healthcare system, or patients, who are workers in the healthcare system, who are people who believe in a universal healthcare system, how we can try to build power to, to fight for a more equitable system. So we see the work we do as political, but it, it's not connected to a specific political party. For better or worse, um, in Nova Scotia, um, we're in a unique position where we have had all three major political parties in power over the last 15 years, and none of them have solved the problems in healthcare or in long-term care. Um, we've been around as an organization since 1996. This is our 25th um, year in existence. And uh, we're um, an organization with one staff person, myself, as well as a, a volunteer board. Um, and we're made up, as I said, wow. of, um, of patients, of healthcare workers, of uh, researchers, of people from uh, community groups like the faith-based community, from service provision organizations. Um, and, and our goal above all else is to protect, strengthen, defend and expand public health care. Uh, we believe that uh, public health care is, um, is one of the most important social programs we have in this country. Uh, and we think that it's actually really important that we don't just defend it. I think for us, it's really important that we look at ways to improve and expand it. We recognize that there are limitations in the system. Importantly, we recognize that universal health care has never been universal. Um, there are huge gaps both in the services we provide. Um, long-term care is actually a great example of that. Um, how it existed mm-hmm. next to and outside of the system. But also there's lots of people who have been excluded even from the services we do offer. Um, it's been a, a significant problem um, to get equitable care as we've seen and continues to be um, for uh, people of color, for um, racialized people from immigrant populations, certainly from people from First Nations. Um, we've had a huge failure to accommodate healthcare for members of the, the queer community. Um, for people who use drugs, for incarcerated people. We have a healthcare system we like to say is universal, but in our mind, that's a promise and it's a promise we need to try to fulfill. It's not something that currently exists now. So the work we do is political. The work we do is about trying to make sure everyone has access to the care they need regardless of who they are, where they live or how much money they have. Um, And we've been doing it for 25 years and um, it's, you know, it's been an uphill battle, but I I think that we've done important work in in the province. and, And I would say we're one of, um, I believe now currently eight provincial and territorial health coalitions. Um, and we work with um, our partners there as well as uh, national partners like the Canadian Health Coalition, uh, Canadian Doctors for Medicare and various other organizations um, as part of, I think a real attempt to rebuild a national movement to fight for public health care. Thank you, that is really great. Cause right now you have several uh, call to actions or initiatives at this point. And the four that were, if you could just provide further detail, the first one being the private deals, proven, proven failures. Can you just explain a little bit more yeah, about that? Yeah, so we that? have sort of, I think um, we sort of in the past have organized broadly our work in sort of four categories publicly of what we're doing, but um, it's always in flux. And private deals, proven failures was um, originally um, 
a specific campaign around trying to stop uh, public-private partnerships in hospital infrastructure. Um, in Nova Scotia, we're building uh, the largest infrastructure project we've ever had in the province, which is going to be over $2 billion on a, um, a P3 hospital, which is an expansion and replacement oh. of a hospital downtown, the QE2 Health Science Center. I think every province has at least one bit, uh, one hospital called the QE2 at some point, but uh, yes. we have one in, which is the largest facility in Nova Scotia, really in Atlantic Canada, sort of a regional hub. Um, and uh, in some ways it's uh, emblematic of a larger problem of privatization in the system because um, the province is planning on using a public-private partnership, a P3 funding scheme to, to fund it. And um, the plan itself is an unnecessary overexpenditure. It also, uh, in terms of cost, we're looking at, um, we've already spent over $150 million just on legal and design work, which is enough to build basically half of a hospital. Um, but in addition, um, it, it undermines the democratic control of the system, right? It, it, um, we've seen this, particularly in Nova Scotia, the bad example has been P3 schools. Um, we've, Ontario certainly has seen um, disasters with everything from, from highways to hospital facilities. Um, we've seen um, massive problems in Quebec with them. So uh, that's part of specifically concentrates on P3 um, infrastructure projects, but more generally we fold in our anti-privatization work into that as a whole. So a big thing for us is that we, we're worried about threats to the public system through privatization. Um, there are parts yes. of the system that are already fully or largely privatized. And we want to roll that back and increase um, the public delivery of services and, and make that delivery better. But in addition to that, we, we are always on the lookout to make sure that we're um, raising the alarm on things like private clinics, preventing um, private for-profit uh, blood collection and plasma collection uh, companies from establishing a foothold. Basically anything that undermines a public system by trying to introduce profit and taking resources out of the public system um, are things that we actively oppose. And that, that's sort of our campaign for that. And your, thank you. And your second one is the care in the community. So this would be community-based uh, programs as well? Yeah, so that's um, in some ways an, an attempt to articulate our belief that it's not just about, particularly in Nova Scotia, having um, having care, which is, um, we're defining pretty broadly when it comes to healthcare. So for us, that certainly yeah. includes obviously primary care and emergency care, which is what people mostly think about. In Nova, and in Nova Scotia, emergency care, particularly in rural Nova Scotia, is a big issue that I think sometimes yeah. it's hard for other provinces to understand. There are um, emergency rooms that will close on 24 hours notice because they can't staff them. At times, um, one emergency uh, room, the one in Sheath Harbor, a couple of years ago, it's closed something like almost 60% of days, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's emergency care, it's primary care, but it's also bigger than that. It's access to long-term care in your community. Um, so that you can stay in your community as you age or if you um, have a disability, um, that you're not forced to leave your community. It's access to specialists, certainly. But beyond that, it's also access to things like mental health supports, um, addictions supports, um, if that's what you need. Um, but also preventative care and dealing with um, the things that make us sick in the first place, the social determinants of health. So we fold that all into the idea that um, people should have access to the care they need in all of its forms, regardless of where they are in the province. Um, and that's that's a real challenge in Nova Scotia due to our geography. Um, we have a fairly urban and population in some ways, but um, it's all located in basically a single large municipality and then um, one slightly smaller one. So Halifax has about, um, I think at this point, it's uh, about 45% of the population. And then mm, okay. Sydney, Cape Breton, which is a bit uh, smaller of a city. And then beyond that, it's mostly... Uh, large and small towns. And, and so that, that leads to some significant um, regional disparities, even within the province. 
Exactly. And then your third one here is about pharma care, which is kind of important because some people may not be able to afford their medications as to what may not be covered by the government. Can you just explain a little bit more on that? Yeah, um, it's part of a national campaign with our, our partners, um, although it has obviously a provincial component because it'll require provincial buy-in, but we're looking for a universal public pharma care plan that gives everyone access to the same plan. Um, to get all the medication they need. We're, we're not in favor of either a fill in the gaps plan that only covers yeah. people who don't have coverage through private insurance. Um, we're also not in favor of making sure that people only have access to the 60 most commonly used drugs. Uh, what we think is that uh, modern medical care requires a lot of things. And one of them is, is pharmaceuticals. Um, and, that, um, and we've seen the importance of that over the last year, certainly. Um, so we wanna see a national public plan um, that covers everyone that's universal that you access using your health card. Um, and it's easy to use. We think there's, we know actually there are huge administrative savings to that. We know that there are improvements to people's access to care. We know that people are not getting the medication they need, not buying it because they have to pay out of pocket. Um, but the other thing that's gotta be part of that has to be uh, looking at pharmaceutical policy more broadly. We have to look at how we approve it. We have to look at ensuring that we have, or how we approve specific drugs when they enter the market to make sure they're safe and they're effective. We have to make sure that we're thinking about how we price those drugs in terms of the public system paying for it. Um, we also have to look at um, things like manufacturing and bringing uh, public manufacturing back like what we used to have with the Connaught Labs, um, which were a really important part of uh, Canada's healthcare system at one point was, was having that capacity. Um, yes. So we think, and we also think that it's really important to do things like modernize our ability to, um, to track prescribing trends. Right, which can be part of this. Um, one of the reasons why, for example, the uh, opiate outbreak was so bad was that there was a real lag, particularly in Canada, between knowing how quickly some doctors and in, in, in some regions um, were prescribing under pressure from um, Purdue Pharma and other pharmaceutical companies, uh, opiates for pain management um, and our ability to have policy catch up with it. And so we, we think that, phar that pharmacare is not just the opportunity to give people the medication yeah. they need, it's the opportunity to think about what uh, a pharma, the role of pharmaceuticals and the role of, um, of prescription drugs in treating illness and in being part of our public health care system. And in some ways, it's an opportunity to reimagine a better system because it's become such a central part of how we yes. uh, deliver health care. And it was really put together ad hoc. Definitely. I definitely couldn't agree with you more on that. And then with the your fourth uh, item here is the health funding gaps. Can you just uh, go into a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is um, primarily about federal funding to uh, the provinces, in particular Nova Scotia. Um, we have some very specific demographic differences with other provinces. So for example, we have a, a much older population than other than the average province. Um, we've had a shrinking population that's changed over the last couple of years. Um, we'll see what happens uh, with the, the stalling of uh, immigration due to COVID, but um, we do have uh, some significant age uh, differences with other provinces, but also we have very high levels of chronic disease. Um, and so as a result, uh, we do need uh, additional federal funding as, as all the provinces do. Um, the federal government in their defense, the federal government has really stepped up during COVID. And a, if anything, it's disappointing how little the provinces have spent on COVID specific funding yes. and how much they have relied on the federal government. But we don't think that it's enough for that to happen only during um, a time of crisis. What we need to do is have a robust, well-funded system that is flexible enough to deal with crisis without a massive infusion of, of money um, when things yeah. go wrong. And back in 2016, uh, the provinces, um, and Nova Scotia was the second province to sign this and really started, I think, the, really opened the floodgates on it, signed bilateral deals with the federal government 
uh, on federal funding, where previously they had said that they um, would need somewhere in the realm of about 6% uh, increases each year uh, in the Canadian health transfer. Basically, the short version is, is that the Canada health transfer is a federal transfer that gives yes. money to the provinces to deliver health care. Um, and there's what's called an escalator clause, which is how much that goes up each year. And that's a complicated clause based on uh, on population, on GDP, that sort of thing. But on average, the provinces said they needed at least 6% in order to um, just maintain the levels of health care that they had. Uh, they signed a deal that would peg it to GDP with a, a minimum floor of 3%. So we're looking at about cutting that amount almost in half. Um, and that was a 10-year deal that cost the province of Nova Scotia almost a, a billion dollars wow. over 10 years in funding. And that's a lot for Nova Scotia. It was more yeah. for other provinces, but as a percentage, I mean, that, that's about a quarter. Now it's about 20% of the, um, of an annual healthcare budget. So that, that's significant spending and that's money that the province just won't have to spend on healthcare. And so for us, this is a question both of uh, the federal government stepping up, but also the provincial government pushing the federal government to do it. The federalism in Nova Scotia is complicated or in Canada is complicated, yeah. leads to conflict. I think that it's often used as an excuse to not do things rather than being a real impediment. But part of that has to be the provinces putting pressure on the federal government. And we also really think that when this happened in 2016, um, it was a squandered opportunity by the federal government and the provinces, in part because of the political landscape at the time, which was that overwhelmingly you had liberal provincial governments and a liberal federal government. And there were a lot of big question um, federalism issues, not just on healthcare, like the, the lack of, um, of a deal that was signed by all the provinces that went along with a health accord that laid out um, responsibilities and, and other things for healthcare. That, that's a huge gap. But also, we didn't deal with big federalism issues like election reform. We didn't deal with big federalism yeah. issues like our relationship to First Nations in this country, any of the environmental problems uh, and climate change issues that should have been dealt with even before that. Um, and now we're dealing with a different political landscape, but we think that um, due to COVID-19, for example, there really is a need from the provinces to to get more funding. And we think this is a, a place with Canada Health Transfer where it's, it's very clear and there's a clear history in the past of the federal government increasing its uh, its transfers and, and ensuring that all provinces have equitable access. Because all of those other things I talked about require resources. And Nova Scotia does not have the kind of ability to levy taxes and raise revenue yeah. that the federal government has. And that's true of many provinces. So, so we need the federal government to step up, but we need the province to, in some cases, compromise and accept that money with strings attached. Um, it needs to prove to the federal government that that money is being spent on healthcare and it, it needs to pressure the federal government. So it's, it, it is asking the federal government for money, but it's asking the province to be part of that process. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And even though from a COVID-19 standpoint, the, you know, Nova Scotia fared as a province better than others, but what were some of the major issues that were exposed by the pandemic? So I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I mm -hmm. think one way to think about it is, is that Nova Scotia did not do a better job containing yeah. um, COVID-19 in long-term care. It did a better job of containing COVID-19 as a whole, but in okay. long-term care, um, we had uh, about an 85, about 85% of the deaths in Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia from COVID-19 were in long-term care. And then, whereas the national average is close to about 75%, right? So we actually had more people as a percentage of the total people who died of COVID-19 die in uh, long-term care. We, uh, to be fair, that was 56 deaths. Um, so it's not the same kind of scope as other yes. provinces. Um, 53 of them were at uh, a facility called Northwood Manor, or Northwood. Mm -hmm. it's a, there's a number of facilities in Northwood Manor, Tower and Center, um, which I actually, a long time ago, I, I worked as a dietary aide in Northwood. So okay. it, it's, and I lived around the corner. So it, 
it struck pretty hard. Um, I think that one of the things it showed was one of the, the metaphor I like to use for it is, is that if you think of the healthcare system as a piece of string, it was always pulled completely tight. And so when there was more pressure on it, there was no slack in the system to sort of pick up yeah. that slack. So when you're running at 105% capacity, 110% capacity all the time, when uh, people are constantly working overtime, when they're working short in long-term care, there's no slack in the system to deal with any sort of disruption. So I think we saw that in long-term care. Um, I think that one of the things that really um, exposed was, was the degree to which um, we have, we, we've just run it really to the bone, that there, there's yes. no room to, to, change, uh, to, to change on the fly. Um, and we were very fortunate. Um, I think there's some luck involved, but also I, I think, to be honest, public health here had a, a very strong, good response. Nova Scotians, I think, stepped up from all walks of life in all communities. Um, and they, um, they worked to contain the disease in the community. It got into some facilities. And, and I think that one of the things that we are concerned about, particularly with Northwood, was um, we don't know yet because we haven't really had a, a public inquiry of any sort into what happened yeah. there. The role that existing inequities in the system played in that. So Northwood is um, an urban um, long-term care center. It's located in North End Halifax, which is uh, a traditionally working class, traditionally multi-ethnic and particularly black um, part of the, the city. Yes. Um, it had a, uh, a staff, which um, we reason to believe is, is, uh, has more racialized people, has yeah. more people who um, have irregular um, migration status, um, who, uh, and it has more um, temporary foreign workers, we believe. Um, we don't know for sure, but these are all, these are all challenges that are facing as well as its residents itself tend to be because it's a not-for-profit facility, because it is a community-based facility that okay. actually has a very good record in delivering care normally, um, that it, it has uh, it had a population of people who, um, who themselves had a lot of risk factors and vulnerabilities to it, be they um, people of color, be they people who have who come from working-class backgrounds. Um, mm. And also um, it had a, a lot of varying levels of acuity because it is three sort of different buildings put together with different levels of, yeah. um, of people's health and, and mobility and mental challenges. So there were all of these sort of overlapping um, issues in the system. And I think that that in some ways is the lesson we need to take away from it is that we need to use this as an opportunity to say, what is the role of race when it comes to um, delivering care and long-term care? What is the role of, of class, of, of class power? What is the role of the fact that, yeah. for example, the private facilities in Nova Scotia actually fared fairly well. And that's because they were able to reallocate um, the budget lines they have for yeah. profit into getting uh, protective equipment quicker, right? Um, whereas the not-for-profits had no operating surplus. So as a result, what happens when you have some parts of the system who are able to siphon off profits and other parts and then reallocate those profits in an emergency, um, which like, I mean, I'm glad they did. I'd rather they yeah. do that than profits, but I'd rather they weren't making profits at all. I'd rather that was always being exactly. reinvested in care. Um, then you have other parts of the system that are, um, that don't have any, any of that slack that I talked about at all. Yeah. And so all of these things, uh, I think the intersection of, of profits, the intersection of things like race and migration status, the intersection of, of geography, I think that all of these things um, need to be, be thought about. Um, and I think one of the challenges we're gonna have um, as we come out of the pandemic, hopefully, um, as we come out of the pandemic is really trying to take some time and find some space to think about um, the, the fact that these inequities existed already 
COVID didn't bring them, it just highlighted them and it just showed how vulnerable our system already is. Yes, definitely it has. So, and I know you've mentioned a number of things as to probably what will be needed going forward to ensure uh, something like this never happens again and that we are prepared. So can you just go over, because you mentioned uh, quite a few things in terms of those types of points as to what needs to be looked at and what we need to concentrate on to make sure that we are better prepared if this should happen in another time. Absolutely. I mean, I think the number one thing in Nova Scotia is going to be um, resources. Um, like at the end of the day, um, all of these things we're talking about, it's not as simple as throwing money at, at the exactly. problem, but solving the problems requires money. Um, so a big one here has been staffing, right? Um, so we have, uh, you know, obviously a workforce, which is uh, disproportionately people of color that is overwhelmingly women. Um, and, uh, and as a working class profession, for all of those reasons, um, there's a societal acceptance that it be underpaid and that it be overworked. Um, you know, I, as I said, like, I, I mean, I worked um, at Northwood itself in, in dietary there and, and I, I saw how hard it was. And that was, that was a long time ago and talking to people who were there, it's, it's only gotten worse. So one of the big things that has to happen here is um, there needs to be uh, a workforce development plan that recognizes um, the makeup of the workforce, but also recognizes the fact that it is woefully inadequate. In Nova Scotia, one of the big thing problems we have is that um, we basically need at minimum 12,000 new long-term care beds over the next 15 years. We only have 7,000 right now. So we're talking about tripling the number of long-term care beds we have to meet yes. the minimum of what, we, of what experts think um, is going to be the increase in the need for it. That's not just building infrastructure, that's training people. That's yeah. ensuring that we retain the people we do have, right? Being a continuing care assistant, which is what we call the Nova Scotia PSWs in, in some other provinces, um, people don't recognize how difficult this work is. Um, the rates of back injuries are higher in, in being a CCW, uh, either in long-term care, but particularly in home care, which is, is another issue entirely. Those injury rates are higher than people working in mines in Canada, right? Like the level of physical injury that's just caused by doing things, by repetitive strain, um, is immense. And that only gets worse when you have people who are working on floors that are supposed to have four staff and only have three who have to stay because um, the one staff member they have got sick um, who is supposed to come in and do the night shift and they can't just leave the patients there. Um, and there's no additional staff to be called. These things add up. So we need a workforce development plan that recognizes training, um, improved training that recognizes retention, that increases just the sheer number of people in the workforce, but also make sure that we have... Um, adequate um, salaries and benefits to make sure that people can sustain this work. Um, one thing that I think is really important that people have not worked in healthcare in general, but long-term care in particular, um, don't recognize is how hard it is at the beginning and how it's set up in a way that you actually often most to the least cannot understand. You can't do the things you need to do if you follow only the protocols. You need to figure out at a really, really basic level things. Like if, if you have to wake up, um, you know, if your job is to wake up 20 patients in the morning and make sure they take their medication, even just knowing which, which patients it is that they're not going to get up at 7am because they're a late riser. Mm -hmm. So you don't go to them and you don't waste your time trying to, you don't spend five minutes trying to wake them up. You go to the ones who you know are going to um, wake up early or who might already be up. You can get them going and then you save the time later, right? Like that's one of those small things that like doesn't, if you don't work in it, that seems almost, you either don't think about it or that seems silly, but yes. that's the difference between whether or not you can actually do your work in a day. That's a difference whether or not you get to see everyone and make sure that people don't get bed sores, right? 
those are the things, but those are also the only things, you know, and that you learn either from yourself because you've been working for it a long time, or you come into a facility that has staff who have been there, who know the residents, who know the protocols, who know how to do these things and can teach you. And one of the problems we have in a high turnover industry or a high turnover sector, it shouldn't be an industry, but a high turnover sector like long-term care is that increasingly you lose those people. And I'm worried we're going to lose even more of them from COVID from people who are going to say, this isn't worth it. I can go make $18 an hour doing something else, or I'd rather make minimum wage, which is only 12 bucks in Nova Scotia or 13 bucks in Nova Scotia. I'd rather go do that uh, than, than break my body and put myself at yes. risk for a pandemic. So we need a workforce development plan. We need more beds in the province. Um, we also do want to see, um, for us, a big part of it is we, we have to stop ha- allowing money to be siphoned off into the private sector. Yeah. But beyond that in Nova Scotia, one of the things that makes Nova Scotia's long-term care system unique and different is that we have very few government-run facilities. Um, so even the facilities that are not uh, for-profit facilities are mm-hmm. overwhelmingly um, not-for-profit private facilities. Okay. So what that means, and I believe the number is... Um, it's it's over 80% are, are private here. So we have fewer than 20% of our um, facilities are public. It creates a big coordination issue, right? So yes. really simple things like ensuring a standardization of protective equipment or standardization of any policies outside of COVID becomes a constant negotiation between the continuing care sector uh, section of the Department of Health and Wellness and yes. the Nova Scotia Health Authority and the individual operators. So we were actually quite slow, particularly in the, um, responding to COVID um, because it requires you to talk to each one of these groups. You also have a situation where you have an industry group that represents both for-profit interest and not-for-profit interest, which creates its own problems. Um, so it, it just becomes this real coordination mess. So we want to see a streamlining of that. And importantly, part of that has to be a streamlining of long-term care as an integral part of our public health care system. I think that in a lot of ways, it occupies this gray area between a place where people live and a place where people receive care. And I think that that is an, in some ways natural. Um, yes. But on the other hand, it also means that people don't think about it as part of our healthcare system. And in Nova Scotia, we know that one of the major strains we have on our um, emergency system, healthcare system, which is itself in crisis, um, and our hospital healthcare system is the number of people who are waiting for um, long-term care placements yes. who are sitting in hospitals. Um, and that's numbers, we don't actually have exact numbers, but it's generally somewhere between 1,200 and 1,800 people at any given time. So we say about 1,500 people. And that's in a system with only 7,000 spots, right? So that's significant. That's a, almost mm-hmm. um, it's a, an, about a 20% wait list. Um, and it's not just that that's a strain on the public health care system. That also means that people aren't getting the care they need, right? If you need long-term care, the things you need to live like a dignified and healthy and joyous life, which is what we should be aiming for. It's not just survival. It's people should be able to live fulfilling lives, um, either just because you're older or because you may have a a disability or other um, limitations doesn't mean that you don't deserve to live like a a great life. You can't get, you can, you can get that in long-term care in a good long-term care facility. You can't get that in an inpatient bed in a hospital, um, right. it's not equipped for that. It's not designed for that. So it's not just about freeing up the rest of the system. It's making sure that people are getting the care they that they need, the care that they deserve, and the care that lets them live a fulfilling uh, life. And, and so we need to do all of these things. I think that a big part of this is going to be resources. Um, yes. 
And, uh, and so that's, that's part of the fight for us is uh, making sure that we're, we're prepared to make sure uh, as a province that we have the resources to, to not just deal with a future pandemic but to deal, that may come, but to deal with what we know is coming, which is this demographic crunch of an aging population that is going to need long-term care spots. And in some ways it's really concerning because the longer we wait on it, the faster we're gonna have to do this. And the faster we yes. have to do this, it's gonna require more money and it's gonna require more commitment. And um, it's really hard. It's gonna be a, a much more difficult sell to spend that money um, and to build that system. And it's gonna be harder to do the longer we wait to do it. Definitely, because it is that cohort is definitely coming up. So that is something that we're going to be seeing sooner than actually later. And I know just in your answer, you use some terms that may not be the same um, here in Ontario, but uh, in terms of staffing. So we would normally say for someone to be at the PSW, um, which is a personal support worker, I think you use the term CCNA, is that correct? Uh, it's Sorry, it's CCA, it's a continuing C care right. assistant here. Um, and and then for nurses, because I know they have different designation depending on where they got their either degree or diploma. Is that the same thing um, for yourself in Nova yeah, Scotia? There's three main cl uh, classifications of nurses. So there's uh, LPN, licensed practical nurses, uh, and then there's registered nurses, and then there's nurse practitioners. Um, and they each have different responsibilities and, and training levels. Um, in long-term care, it's primarily a combination of uh, mostly LPNs and then some registered nurses. Um, and then nurse practitioners, uh, particularly in Nova Scotia, have tended to, um, the push has been to concentrate them into uh, primary care. And so that is in, has included long-term care. So they all play a role in it. And, and I actually do think an important thing to think about though too is just the role when we talk about staffing is, um, it's mostly CCAs slash yes. PSWs and mostly LPNs that are like, that's like the core of what we talk about, but there's a lot of other things going on, right? Like we've yes. seen like some of the like, actual like weird sort of heroes of uh, COVID, uh, particularly early on when we didn't know a ton about how the disease was transmitted, were things like physical plant staff who do cleaning, yes. right? Um, and those also like in Nova Scotia aging facilities, a lot of our facilities are um, remnants of the 1950s and 1960s. Um, a lot of the not-for-profits were built often by things like uh, municipalities or unions or religious orders. They're old facilities. And like when you actually talk to like the physical plant staff are there, it's people who've been there for 30 years who like are probably the only person in Canada who can actually keep like the HVAC system running, right? Yes. Who have like just like managed to just like cobble this thing together and keep it running. And so like, I think that like we have to think about those staff, but we have to think about dietary staff. I think that's increasingly um, a concern. And it's not just a concern to make sure people have healthy food. I think as the demographics of provinces like Nova Scotia change, you're gonna have people who um, have different dietary um, needs and expectations. Um, I see this as someone who's, you know, Chinese Canadian. I, I, it's, and someone who worked in dietary, it's like, you can't, not everyone is used to eating like mashed potatoes and a pork chop every night, right. no matter how good of a pork chop and mashed potatoes you make, there's different dietary needs. And those can't be seen as extras. That's part of living that fulfilling life. Yeah. Right. Um, but also we need to expand the role of things like recreational therapists, um, yes. the role of mental health experts and social workers. Um, so we need to think about staffing on like a, a really big level. And I think that that is um, again, something that like, one of the things that frustrates me is we can't think about and talk about those things when we're so desperate to just make sure people don't die in long-term care. Right. When we're only meeting the bare minimums, we can't talk about what it takes to, to improve the system. And we have really good evidence from places like Europe that um, when you actually spend the time to think about things like the design of buildings, when you think about things like recreation opportunities, when you think about 
all things um, that allow people to live more fulfilling lives, that it actually improves their physical health outcomes and puts less of a strain on those other parts of the system. And so like, it's a hell of a lot easier, sorry, a heck of a lot easier being uh, like an LPN in a system where um, patients are getting proper access to recreation, um, proper access to mental health care, all of these things. And you can do the things that you're an expert on. Yes. Absolutely. And I know you mentioned this before in one of your previous answers about, you know, calling onto the federal uh, government to be part so they, there can be increased funding and as well increased accountability. And you do have the support of other provincial health coalitions. I just want you to just to go into as to why the, the importance of this request and why it needs to be on a national uh, level for this. Absolutely. So we've been working with the other provincial and territorial health coalitions. Um, and I, I would say that uh, as well as a group called Canadians for Long-Term Care yeah. uh, and the Canadian Health Coalition, some of our other allies um, to push for national standards. And we're going to have a, a day of action coming up on April 27th, where there'll be provincial actions um, looking to, to push the federal government for that. And one of the things we did is we released a legal opinion from uh, Goldblatt and Partners yes. um, and that was written by Stephen Schreibman, one of the leading uh, public interest lawyers in Canada um, that lays out what national standards could look like. And importantly, one of the things we asked him to do was to address some of the jurisdictional issues. Because one of the yes. things in Canada that always comes up is the federal government set, will say, well, we can't do that. That's a provincial jurisdiction, right? And the federal government, and then the provincial government will say, well, but taxation uh, is largely a federal jurisdiction. The ability to raise funds is a federal jurisdiction. So we need, we need money. And then the federal government will come back and say, okay, we'll give you money, but you need to do X. And they say, no, whoa, 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 wait, wait, hold up. That's, that's a provincial jurisdiction. You can't tell us what to do. Just give us the money, right? And we've seen this um, to some degree in healthcare, but we've certainly seen it in education, I think is a really good example. This is whenever the federal government's attempted to transfer money for post-secondary education, some provinces just put that into paying down the debt or reducing taxes. Yeah. So one of the things we want to say is like, look, um, there's an interest from the federal government in laying out national standards. Um, we think they're good for two reasons. One of the reasons we think they're good is we think that we really believe that everyone across the country should have access to the same care. We think setting up minimal standards that has a federal body that oversees and enforces those standards. So you don't have the province um, in the situation where they're um, overseeing themselves in some cases. Yeah. Um, and particularly some provinces have better third party oversight than others. But um, so we think that those national standards are good. We think that also, some of these things, like a workforce development plan, for example, that needs to happen at a national level, right? Yeah. We have, um, there are some provinces who simply cannot train and recruit the number of staff necessary to do this. Um, and so, uh, and that's going to require money. Um, so we think that, like, there are good national reasons to do this. We, um, yeah. we also think that, like, one of the things that COVID's shown in the Atlantic provinces, because we have had um, periodic uh, closure of borders for non-essential travel, is um, the number of people that actually cross borders, right? So yes. this is a, a regional issue. We have, I was on a phone call last night with a doctor who uh, lives in New Brunswick, but practices about 30% in New Brunswick and 70% in Nova Scotia. He was allowed to travel across the provinces. But like, when you talk to him about like federal and provincial jurisdiction, it's just like, he's just like, that's a joke to him, right? He knows yeah. that those are artificial boundaries, right? And lots of people know that. So we think that like part of it is the plan has to be national, but we also know that the federal government, the best way to get the federal government to agree to transfer money is to have clear national standards in place as well, right? Yes. So one of the things we wanted to do is, is lay out national standards that are um, based on the Canada Health Act, but also add some additional factors, including uh, proper oversight that in, uh, add uh, as, um, ensuring 
public delivery um, and, uh, and that ensure uh, proper uh, ratios of uh, work hours to, to residents. And, and that is, I think, a crucial part of when we talk about workforce development is, is a, the center of it has to be making sure we have enough staff who are working at a given time to meet the needs of residents, right? So, um, yeah, so we, we propose these standards um, as, and, and, you know, we don't think they're going to be necessarily adopted wholesale. I'd love if they were. I think it's a good piece of legislation. But what we want to say is like, look, this is what it could look like. Um, this is how this addresses the jurisdictional issues. These are the main issues we want to see addressed. And we think that this language is strong enough to ensure that it is addressed. Um, but also we have a document that says, um, here's how you can do this in a way that uh, recognizes the unique nature of Canadian federalism. If you want to say you can't do this under federalism and there's jurisdictional issues, then let's see your legal opinion from an, a well-regarded independent legal expert. And let's debate it, right? Like, just don't yeah. use this as an excuse to just cut off the conversation about what the federal and provincial government can do to work together to ensure national, uh, not, there's a national long-term care plan. Mm -hmm. The other thing about it that I, we think is really important is it helps frame it as part of the national uh, yes. public health care system. Universal health care in this country, as I said, I think has always been an incomplete project. But it's an important project when it comes to imagining what we are as a country. It's an important project when it comes to imagining what we owe each other as neighbors, as, uh, as strangers, as people who, who, um, who share something. And in some ways, the one thing we share is, is a universal healthcare system. And we think more explicitly tying long-term care to that system um, helps protect it and helps um, provide a path forward uh, when we expand it. And also helps, again, as, as I've said in the past, helps integrate it into the system itself. So it's not seen as a sort of adjunct that sits next to Healthcare. Exactly. And I know you mentioned this in your answer with the uh, legal opinion back in March of this year, um, in terms of um, with the national standards in terms of and well for long term care residential care, there was three main objectives. And maybe if we can take some time to go through them. So the first one being the access to quality of care and long term care, based on the need and not on their ability to pay. Why is this so important? I mean, for me, it's a moral issue. At the end of the day, I think um, the ability of people to, to survive, first and foremost, but beyond that, as I've said, to live a dignified life and ideally a life that is, is full of, of joy um, yeah. is, um, should not be based on uh, the circumstances, uh, the economic circumstances you found yourself in, right? I think this is something people should have access to by right. And I would say when I when I talk about Joy, like again, like Northwood has been so in the news in Nova Scotia as the facility where we had so many deaths. But um, I actually have a number of connections. Like my my aunt uh, worked there for years as a social worker. My grandfather mm -hmm. um, lived there until he he passed away. And the, in a lot of ways, the best years of his life were in that facility um, because it was he was part of a community again in a way that he hadn't been um, for much of his later life, right? And I think that like having access to that needs to be something that everyone has um, and it, it should be in every community. They should be the center of communities, um, of rural communities, of urban communities, of suburban communities. Um, and the problem also with it becomes that when people don't have access to yeah. the sort of quality care and long-term care that they need, uh, they find themselves in other parts of the healthcare system. That's so right. even from a strictly from like a, a bean counting perspective mm -hmm. of figuring out balancing ledgers. If you want to reduce the cost of, uh, of emergency care, of um, you want to reduce the cost of uh, 
inpatient care and hospitals, if you want to make sure that people have access to that care, a big part of it is offer them high quality long-term care so that they don't get so sick that they need to go in there in the first place. Or when they do find themselves sick, there's a place to discharge them. Like they can be their new yes. home. Um, so for us, it's, it's ensuring that everyone has access to that. And again, the a key part here is that it's quality care. We're not looking to That's warehouse right. people. We're looking to find ways to build communities that people with disabilities and that people who are, are aging can live in and be a part of, and that mm -hmm. they can choose to go to one that meets their needs, um, that is in their community, not make a choice based on the one that they can afford um, or that uh, you know, they, is the, the option of last resort. We think they should all be good. We think that people should have access to them. And, and we think that they should be part of the public sector because we, we know that when you're talking about trying to siphon off 10% of profits to, to pay out as dividends to shareholders or to reinvest in expanding your company, that that's money that's not going to into care. Um, exactly, exactly. And then the second one would be the national standards required to ensure access to necessary comprehensive and high quality long-term care. Yeah, and again, I think this really comes down to um, this question of comprehensive and high quality. Um, and as I said, I think that, you know, we've, my fear coming out of COVID, I think that like there's COVID offers possibilities, but my fear is that it becomes a question simply of like, how do we make sure worst case scenario doesn't happen again? Exactly. Right. And that's understandable. Like I, I mean, I remember early on in the pandemic, um, driving to buy far too many groceries, still cans of soup in the basement. Um, I remember driving to go do that. And listening to CBC radio, they're interviewing people from BC um, when, who were families at the Lynn Valley Center in British Columbia, mm -hmm. which was one of the first facilities to really be hit hard there. And I both recognized what was happening there, someone who used to work in long-term care, but also kind of couldn't believe it. Like I actually pulled over um, to just sort of like listen to it because it was hard, right? Like yeah. I think that like, in, and so I understand that was the facility where um, essentially like it essentially collapsed in terms of functioning. Like, staff got sick they couldn't go in some staff were too scared some staff had yes. to pick between other jobs in that job um and family members essentially had to like force their way in to take care of people so you had family members who were like essentially quit their jobs to go in and not just care for their loved ones but to try to care for other loved ones and it, it i mean it sounded like a horror story and that story repeated itself across the country um yeah. it repeated itself in ontario it repeated itself in quebec you had long-term care facilities that were supposed to be people's homes. There were supposed to be places where they could uh, live out the final years of their lives, or yeah. in some cases live the entirety of their lives, uh, hopefully a long time in the case of many younger people who find themselves in long-term care. And they were turned into charnel houses. Yeah. Um, and that's, um, we need to do something about that, but we can't stop at that, right? We can't say that like the goal here is to make sure that we don't have another Lynn Valley or the goal here is that exactly. we don't have another collapse of the long-term care system. The goal here has to be high quality care where people can live. Um, I mean, like it, it doesn't seem too much to me to ask for that, right? Um, and I think that yeah. sometimes we have to phrase it in the sense that it's like, what are we choosing over this? Um, and what we're choosing over this has traditionally been, uh, has, has been things like corporate tax cuts, has been uh, subsidies yeah. to private industry. And in a lot of cases is uh, choosing to allow for-profit uh, long-term care facilities to take money that should be spent on care and should be spent on improving the public health care system and particularly improving long-term care and improving care for those residents and, and turning it into profits for uh, individuals and for pension funds and for hedge yes. funds and for uh, for investors. And I actually think that on the one hand, Nova Scotia is an extreme example of this where we're talking about almost tripling our long-term care capacity over the next 15 years. 
but every province needs to increase their capacity. And that's actually a remarkable opportunity, right? I think that in mm -hmm. some ways we can see that as being like, it's daunting. It is a massive, I, I was trying to think of this last night with a discussion with someone else about like the scale of what we're talking about. Like what have yeah. we built that would talk about like tripling long-term care capacity? It's bigger than building public health care because the Medicare system relied primarily on existing hospitals. It was turning what was largely private existing insurance into public insurance. And it was, it was a slow process. This is a much more rapid process that's in some ways akin to um, the building of the, the suburbs after yes. the Second World War, right? So it's post-war reconstruction in Canada, which was funded largely through the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation sort of uh, subsidizing and investing in mortgages as well as like actively building communities. The difference is we need to do this in the public sphere and we actually have to do it in some ways much quicker, right? And we also, um, but this is an opportunity, right? In some ways it's actually allowing um, there's a ton of pent up economic activity there, right? There's construction jobs, there's hiring uh, tens, hundreds of thousands of new staff in a caring economy, which can be, um, which is a green economy. The act of caring for people is in a lot of ways carbon neutral. It's a huge jobs program, but also beyond that, it's an opportunity to build new facilities from the ground up that look like what we know good facilities look like. Uh, we know that facilities that actually pay attention to things like location, making sure that they're part of communities so people can walk to them. My yes. grandfather at Northwood, uh, when he first got in there, he used to walk to like a barber shop offsite. Um, he was able to do that. He used to go swimming at Staticona, which is the naval base. He was a former merchant marine. He was able to do that because it was an urban uh, center, right? So it was in his community and even in rural communities, making sure that they're part of those communities. That's important. Making sure they have things like garden and outdoor recreation spaces. Um, having options like things like gardens that people can actually garden themselves rather than having staff. In Europe, there are, lo there are some um, low acuity facilities where the staff cook for themselves with the assistance of, or yes. sorry, the, the residents cook for themselves with the assistance of staff, right? This is an opportunity. When we look at the number of long-term care facilities we need to build, this is not just a challenge. It's an opportunity to rethink how we deliver uh, healthcare, to do all the things that we know lead to building a rich life. So yes. I look at this as um, when we talk about, you know, comprehensive and high quality residential care. In some ways for me, this is also, this is uh, an important piece of, this going forward because it's not a defensive piece. It's a piece that doesn't say that we can build a system that is adequate. It says that we should envision a system that is great. And, and we think that that should be enshrined in uh, any sort of national standards going forward. And, and that should be the expectation of provinces and that's the expectation the federal government should have. That's the expectation that um, we as, as people in this country should have as well. Sorry, the last point here is the federal options for reducing the role of for-profit to for long-term care service providers. Yeah, as I said, uh, siphoning yeah. off that profit um, is a real danger. Nova Scotia was hit a bit differently. Um, we had uh, we had three deaths out of the, the 56 long-term care deaths were in private for-profit homes. Um, yeah. So we would like to, um, but we, we know that in the rest of the country and on a whole, private facilities had shockingly higher mortality rates. To be honest, yeah. like, I am as opposed to, pro to profit in healthcare as anyone you'll meet. Even I was shocked by those numbers. Yep. And I do want to take this opportunity as well to thank uh, Nora Loretto, who's actually a personal friend of mine, um, yep. for the work she's done in actually tracking uh, deaths in long-term care. In the province. I know when I first talked to her, like the first week she started doing it, she thought she would do this for a bit and that it would take her like half an hour a night. And it became a multi-night thing that she's been doing for over a year. And, she, and mm -hmm. so her work has been really invaluable in understanding this. But for-profit facilities have had much higher mortality rates. Um, but the other thing about for-profit facilities is like, 
when management failed to protect residents, um, the cost of that got da downloaded onto the public system, right? So what ends up happening with these uh, private long-term care facilities is that they exist only because of public subsidy. And I think yes. this is a thing that people really have a hard time understanding is that there are retirement facilities where people will pay you know, $10,000 a month if they're really wealthy to, to live in this sort of like, which is essentially like a condo with amenities, right? Like those exist. Yeah. But when we talk about long-term care, long-term residential care, the virtually all of those spots um, exist only because the provincial government pays for those spots and pays for people yes. to be in them. And that costs the same in a private facility as in a not-for-profit. Uh, it costs the same in a private for-profit facility and in a private not-for-profit facility. In most yeah. provinces, that's just a flat number, right? So that means that like, in order for them to get their 10 or 12% profit or whatever it is, they just budget that out and they just say, we're just going to find that 10 to 12% savings elsewhere. And that's often, most often on staffing. Yes. Um, that's overwhelmingly where that comes from. But what this means is that this is an industry that exists only through indirect subsidy of the fact that we have an emergency and acute care system that deals with the problems that they create through inadequate care, but even more importantly, exists purely based on direct subsidy and the fact that they just get paid on a per resident basis yes. to have residents in them. And in uh, most provinces, uh, I'll speak only for Nova Scotia here, mm -hmm. their physical plant construction um, is overwhelmingly subsidized by um, exactly. the provincial government. So we have this industry that um, essentially has taken the generation of profit and made it the responsibility of provincial governments to ensure that they have guaranteed profit. And this is extremely stable profit. There's a reason why um, investors really like it at a yeah. time, um, you know, when, uh, so uh, there's a lot of conversation about the role of, uh, of REITs, uh, real estate income yes. trusts in, um, in long-term care. And I think that there's, uh, we don't have time to get into it. I think there's, a lot of debate to be had around what that actually does to long-term care. But the reason why it's so attractive to investors is that when you have a provincial government that's going to guarantee you profit because they are going to pay for your physical upkeep and infrastructure yeah. builds, and they're going to pay you a guaranteed lump sum of money. And all you're, you have to expect management to do is to keep costs down. Yeah. That's going to guarantee you um, returns. Uh, it's going to guarantee you payouts on your, your ownership of units of this REIT um, at a time when bonds are yielding one and a half percent. So the reason why it's so attractive it has to do with um, not just the nature of government policy uh, when it comes to healthcare, but it has to do with the sort of the political economy of the time we live in, which is investors, ironically, many of whom are retirees themselves, are looking for a stable form of retirement of exactly. uh, investment income in the form of yields. Bonds aren't delivering it. So they, they turn to real estate investment in the form of REITs, which themselves own long-term care facilities who are, in some cases actually delivering improper care to the same people who own pensions or own mutual funds or own uh, share like units of chart wells. Yes. Like people are in some ways actually like, you know, getting yield off of their own suffering. And I think that that is um, the way we structured the world, I think leads us into those contradictions. And I, we think it's the role of government to say, we're going to stop making this happen. We're going to take that money that's going to long-term care profits. And we're going to force that to be reinvested in long-term care um, care and yes. frontline care. And um, we think that the federal government needs to take a lead on this. Um, and we think that a big part of that is, is to figure out ways initially to start to just simply stop transferring that money. I think that it, it's going to be a long process to figure out how we um, deprivatize the system. Um, there are examples of this internationally where it has happened, um, but it, it's difficult and it's time consuming. But we think the first step is to just say, 
we're not going to continuing to give you new money. If new money goes to the provinces, that can't go into for-profit care. We want to see that in public care. We want to see that in um, not-for-profit uh, private care if necessary. But um, what yeah. we don't want to see is that going to um, to investors and, and owners. No, thank you for that. Uh, because that's a great uh, explanation. And I think that will help people to really understand the, the, the conversation as to why profit really needs to be taken out of long-term care. And this goes into the next question in regards to the senior advocate role. Um, does you, do you support that for your province in the case that, that I know that other provinces do have that type of a role and they would not only support you know, into seniors in long-term care, but also in community. What would you say to that? Yeah, we, we think there needs to be a robust, um, either a senior advocate or a continuing care ombuds person. Right now in Nova Scotia, that's the purview of the broader ombuds office. Yeah. And we do have a Protection of People in Care Act. Um, there have been overwhelmingly negative experiences trying to seek resolution in either of those. Um, and I, not to harp on this, but in some ways that's a resource issue, but also in some yeah. ways that's, um, there's a central contradiction in long-term care, which is we have so few spots, again, about 1500 people on a waiting list with about 7,000 spots that um, the Department of Health and Wellness and um, the Nova Scotia Health Authority in this province, which sort of oversee long-term care they're in a really difficult position because they don't want to endanger the operation of existing facilities, right? right? Um, and so when you have people whose responsibility is, uh, they've got pressure on one hand to say, look, we need more long-term care spots, but we're not gonna give you more money to do it. Yeah. And then they're also being told, you need to threaten to revoke licenses of facilities that are not doing that work. The, that's pressures that like as an individual, like I don't know how you square that circle and I'm glad it's not my yeah. job to do that. Um, in Nova Scotia, one of the things we've had a major issue with, and we, we did have a major report on this several years ago, the, the province commissioned a major report on this, is death from bed source, um, which is just mm. people simply not um, not being moved and yes. um, small abrasions becoming infected. And um, at times, like there were photos of, of people who have died in long-term care in Nova Scotia where you could see bone through the bed source. Um, and it, it's horrific. And people haven't been able to get um, the kind of resolution they need. So we would like to see um, some sort of arm's length, um, be that a seniors advocate, be that a, um, an ombuds person, be that a, uh, a committee or that, is, that has the ability to, to enforce these things. Importantly for us, I think there's, there's gotta be a few key things about it. And the design, I, we're not, I'm not an expert, we don't have any expertise mm -hmm. on exactly what the design should look like. And we think that needs to be debated, but I think the key things that we do wanna see with it is, it has to be properly resourced. Um, so it has to have investigative capacity um, and it, it has to be free of political interference. So we don't want to see the minister um, refusing to the sanction of a long-term care facility in a politically um, important riding, for example. Um, it has to have like enforcement ability and order making ability. So it needs to be able to like do things like subpoena people. It needs to be able to do things like shut down facilities immediately. It, it needs to have actual teeth and the resources to do that. We can't have a couple of people sitting on phones asking people to fill out like managers to fill out questionnaires exactly. at long-term care facilities. Um, and it needs to, um, to talk to residents and families. I think that that's a key thing is that um, one of the complaints we have heard from families who have had uh, loved ones have adverse experiences in long-term care facilities is uh, no one ever asked them. Like they're like, we look at the reports and in Nova Scotia, we have a regime where um, the report goes online 
I can mm-hmm. go look at the most recent report, but it, it's a one pager that just explains it. You know, yeah. it looks like a, essentially it looks like the same report that a restaurant gets, right? So you're just like inadequate hand wash station at a restaurant, right? And, just, and in this case, it's just like in, uh, you know, inadequate hygiene on floors and then like ask for resolutions. So it doesn't provide detail, but also like your family just say like, look, I've, I'm in there every day and no one asked me, right? Um, so we think that it has to talk to families. It has to talk to residents themselves. Um, and ideally we'd like to see a really strong um, role for, for families and residents. I think there is a lot of emphasis on the role of families. I think it's really important we engage residents, right? I think that that is difficult in some cases. You have residents who have um, different capacities in terms of um, ability to attend meetings, ability to participate in them. But I think we should invest in the resources to help the people do that, right? Um, both because it'll provide safer facilities, it'll identify problems, but also when we talk again about that quality of life, it, it helps provide meaning to people, um, which I think is really important. And you have people in long-term care facilities who have spent their whole lives doing difficult, complicated things, raising families, um, doing difficult jobs their whole lives. And yes, they want to rest, but in some cases, uh, I know in some cases, the, they're actually desperate for something to do in some ways that that could be good. So we want to see that. And I think an important part of it is it has to be about um, identifying specific facilities and management and identifying strict uh, structural problems and cannot become just a mechanism to blame individual staff. Um, one of the things exactly. that does happen too often is staff who are overworked, who are, are put in impossible positions. Um, often people try to blame them for things that go wrong. And certainly there are cases of negligence, um, but those need to be caught um, through um, licensing bodies that are overseeing them through inspection regimes that are able to offer correction um, prior to um, sort of disasters and tragedies happening. Um, And most importantly, just providing people with resources. If people are working short, if people are working uh, mandated overtime, if people are in some cases um, working casual for long periods of time and are just desperate to piece together as many shifts as possible. When I worked in dietary, there were weeks where I worked 60 hour weeks because I didn't know if the next week I was going to get six hours in one shift, right? And when you do all those things, they add up and they cause people to make small mistakes. And small mistakes when you're dealing with healthcare can be deadly. So um, we think all these things need to come together, but certainly a seniors advocate. And importantly, what we would also like to see is um, federal oversight that also um, ensures that that there's another step that is overseeing these things, not necessarily like each individual facility, but is Mm -hmm. overseeing the provincial um, accountability regimes to ensure that they are meeting minimum standards of of reporting, of robustness, uh, of regularity, and of resourcing. Yes, exactly. And do you think like adding on to that, do you think the seniors advocate role would be the best to be included part of the national discussion so they can be able to monitor those standards and the quality? Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to see it uh, at a national level. Um, We think that it needs to work alongside a a provincial body, but we think that having a national uh, oversight body that can just it sort of oversees the overseers in a lot of ways, um, yes. but also just ensures standards. But also in my mind, I think that one thing that gets missed here is that having a body like that that's also responsible for like analyzing that data lets us get ahead of trends. It's the same thing I talked about with Pharmacare is that we do we are very bad at data collection in this country. Um, it's actually remarkable when you look at, um, there are a lot, God, there are a lot of problems with uh, yeah. healthcare in the United States, right? But the CDC, uh, Center for Disease Control, keeps statistics that are, Yes. mind-boggling to us in this province uh, and in this country. So I think that like being able to actually look at that data so we can, they can say that like, look, why has there been a spike in um, dementia-related violence perhaps in long-term care? Exactly. And being able to say like, okay, well, we need to come up with some federal money and start transferring it in here. Or there's a problem with the way that we're training um, X, Y, or Z staff people, or we're not creating enough, um, we're not creating enough 
facilities that have the acuity level to actually deal with yes. these or whatever the issue is, or there's a problem on the medication side, whatever it is, being able to identify that at a national level so we can get ahead of those trends is what modern healthcare should look like, right? Instead, yes. we're, we're kind of always on the back foot. So we think like a seniors advocate position both uh, ensures that we get good day-to-day -day monitoring, but it also lets us uh, have some structures to actually just zoom out and think about what, uh, what these improvements look like on like a, a macro right. scale. Exactly. Just so to give us where, what, what will our future kind of look like and where we can be able to do the improvements, just as like what you had said. And Chris, um, I, you know, I just want to say, how do, how can people, how, how can our listeners be able to get involved with your organization or support your organization? Can you just let us know? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to um, nshealthcoalition.ca is our website. And there's some information on there. Um, I think the best thing you can do is to become a member. We are uh, an individual membership-based organization. We just had our um, our general meeting a couple of weeks ago, um, and it was, it was a success. Um, but we do actually have uh, a couple of open board seats. In fact, if people are interested, mm -hmm. we're looking particularly to diversify our board, both in terms of people's experiences, but also geographic location, if, if you're from Nova okay. Scotia. Um, so if you want to become a member, we have some uh, events coming up, like the Day of Action on the 21st. We're partnering with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternative, or the Day of Action is April 27th, rather. We're partnering with our allies at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives to do a, a workshop on um, social policy framework and, and healthcare policy. So we're looking at trying to put uh, talk about some of our policy priorities so people, if you're members, can get involved in that. Um, we work with some coalition allies around um, long-term care and other issues. So there's a number of ways to plug in. The best way to do that is, is to become a member. It, it is $10, but we have a policy yes. that we um, we do not deny membership to anyone for financial need. So um, there's instructions there if uh, it would be an impediment to pay a membership fee to, to become a member without doing so. You can also follow us on social media. Facebook's the most commonly updated one. Um, and I would also encourage people, I know there's listeners from all over. Yeah. There are provincial health coalitions across the country. Um, they do incredible work. I, I'm often envious of the work that a lot of our allies do do. Um, and they, and we're really a lot of sort of the forefront of fighting for improvements to public health care and, and protecting what we do have. So I'd encourage you if you're interested to just type in your province, like BC Health Coalition, Manitoba Health Coalition. Uh, in the case of Alberta, you're going to want to look up Friends of Medicare Alberta. They have a slightly different name. Um, and look at getting involved there. I, I think that there's, there's tons of ways to plug in and I think that this is a long haul fight, but I, I think the important thing here is like politicians aren't going to save us, right? Um, like private long-term care facility owners are not going to save us. The solution here is, is us and it's building power in a movement to, um, to fulfill that promise of public health care, including long-term care, including home care, including continuing care that we talked about earlier. Um, and, and I think that um, the best way to do that is to get involved in particularly as hopefully we're seeing light at the end of the tunnel from this pandemic. And I'm saying that from the perspective, the privileged perspective yes. of Nova Scotia. Um, I think it's also an opportunity to reconnect with community, right? I think that, that it's been a hard year for everyone. Um, and I think that um, getting involved in an organization like uh, a health coalition or another activist organization um, is a way to reconnect with community and to try to make sense of what, what has been a bad year. Yeah. Um, and that has been a bad year that's really made us think about healthcare. Um, and so I, I would really encourage folks to, plug in and, and think of ways to get involved. And I'm always happy to chat with people. My, my contact information is certainly on the website. So um, if you're here and, and if you're in a province without uh, perhaps the infrastructure of a provincial health coalition or other sort of healthcare activism, um, these things start by people deciding to do it themselves. Um, exactly. And so I'm certainly happy to, to point people in the direction of how they might be able to do that in their own uh, province or territory as well. Perfect. I'll put those in the show notes as well so people can be able to 
access that information. But again, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles and for the time and speaking on all of this. Thank you so much, Chris. No, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome.